If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored Podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. This week's guest is Dr. Yvonne Rogalski. I'm so happy to have Yvonne on to talk about an aphasia therapy technique called ARCS, which stands for Attentive Reading Constraint Summarization. This is one of my favorite new aphasia therapy tools in my tool belt, and I've enjoyed sharing it with my patients, with my colleagues in presentations that I've given, and now for all you guys on the podcast. ARCS is a cognitive linguistic therapy approach to improve discourse through reading and summarization. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to let Yvonne do the rest of the talking. (laughs) My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your host. And without further ado, let's hear from Yvonne. All right. So today I'm sitting down with Dr. Yvonne Rogalski, and I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Leanne. Um, So we're talking about some of your work um, that you've published on, and it is a um, tool for improving discourse, but you go about it by doing um, a step-by-step kind of like reading comprehension activity. So it's called ARCS for short. It's Attentive Reading Constrained Summarization. Um, So that's going to be our topic today. But before we get into that, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you, who you are, where you are, and what you do. (laughs) Um, So I am an associate professor at Ithaca College. Uh, It's a tiny little place in central New York. Um, Cornell is also in Ithaca. Uh, So I'm in the Department of Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology And it's a teaching college. I teach mostly uh, graduate students. Um, My area is adult populations with acquired communication disorders. So I teach courses on cognitive communication disorders, aphasia, motor speech, um, neuroanatomy, uh, and also um, healthy aging. So let's see, I also supervise students, which is something that I really love. We have an aphasia group on campus, which this past semester went online, of course, during the pandemic. And I also supervise students working one-on-one with adults who have acquired communication disorders. So my research interests include discourse, evaluation, and treatment. So I look at different populations Um, in terms of their topic maintenance on the evaluation side, seeing how well someone can maintain topic and seeing if that's related to cognition. Um, I only have one paper out on that, but I'm working on another one. I'm trying to get uh, uh, back into the publishing world again. And uh, I, so actually I have a couple of papers. couple of papers out on that, but I'm working on getting another one out. And then also 
treatment. So discourse treatment is um, when I started in this area of uh, speech language pathology, my interests were, were in language and discourse and wanting to bridge the gap right between clinician and researcher. That was an area I was keenly interested in. And as a doctoral student was able to to um, develop ARCs while I was working in the clinic with Dr. Jay Rosenbeck, um, who has since retired, but he was my he was my mentor for my PhD program, and he was also my mentor in the clinic. He was my supervisor as I was doing my um, clinical fellowship. So, um, so ARCs was kind of this amazing opportunity to, to, to practice some of these theoretical concepts I was thinking about. Um, and so the first case study was with a, a patient in our out, outpatient clinic who had primary progressive um, aphasia. And uh, yeah, Lisa Edmonds, who, as you know, from VNest was integral in, in helping me really formulate some of these ideas and, and, and helping write up um, both, of the, both of the papers with ARCs and, and guide me along, again, with the thought of, of bridging the clinician researcher gap and, and, and helping me with basic things like providing an appendix for clinicians so that they would know how to do the treatment instead of having to search through the, the article itself. Um, Ooh, that's my love language. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also really good at tangents. It's kind of one of my strengths, <laughs> which is probably why there's a component in arts, which is, you know, stick to the topic. Um, so, so anyway, I might do that a little bit. So bear with me. You can bring me back. I'm great with feedback. Just I'm probably going to be the one taking you down some of those tangents. So <laughs> there's no telling where our conversation is going to end up today, which is half the fun. Like we're, we're totally going to cover our topic today, but then it's like bonus, bonus, bonus of all of our wonderful tangents. All right. So um, I really loved hearing about how um, there's so much like mentorship involved in beginning like research and developing processes. And I love hearing that your foundation has always been in connecting the clinician and the researcher and making what's published applicable to us. Yeah. So yeah. that's always the best uh, because you're right. It is very much a struggle when I hear about something really awesome and I go find it in the literature. And first of all, it's actually accessible to us in the literature and it's not behind a paywall. That's always a positive first step. And then I'm reading the article and scanning through it, trying to figure out, okay, now how do I implement this? What are the steps? How do I do this exactly as you did or how it's intended? And then sometimes um, one thing I'm finding now, here's a tangent for you is when I, when I'm doing this process for um, implementing new patient reported outcome measures into my practice, I'm not finding a way necessarily that shows me what the, like how to, Sometimes how to score it is obvious, but then how to interpret that score. Like, what, is, what does that mean now? Where does that number fall in the range of things? What do I have to compare that to? That's what I'm finding missing in the literature. And I'm like, I mean, I can use it, but now how do I report on it? So, um, okay. So getting back to ARCs, reeling us back in. 
Um, let's start at the very beginning with, um, we've kind of lightly touched on what it is, but let's really unpack what ARCS is for. Discourse analysis to improve um, cohesion of your verbal communication. Yeah, so ARCS is more of, um, so it would have more of a coherence component, so maintaining topic. So how I describe it, if you want me to go into a little bit of how I describe it and then and hopefully make it a little relatable, I can do that. Yes. So, so attentive reading and constraint summarization is a cognitive linguistic discourse-based therapy. So when I say discourse, I'm talking about connected utterances beyond the sentence level. So basically, um, ARCS, um, it's a treatment uh, that requires reading short units of language, could be a paragraph, could be one to two sentences, then summarizing that unit of language using constraints, such as avoiding pronouns, terms like thing or stuff, and refraining from opinions or tangents when summarizing. So um, a little theoretical background so the theory is that it strengthens the semantic system by activating the processes that subserve language. So things like cognition, so attention, um, and then specific or intentionally language use. So with ARCs, it's not like you're treating a set of words or treating a set of sentences. You're treating the process of attending to and finding words, which could help contribute to some of the generalization that we see with the treatment. Um, so the two main components are attentive reading and then constrained summarization. So for attentive reading, I like to explain this to my students um, and my clients as, uh, so if I asked you to read a short article and then said goodbye and never followed up with you about what you read, and you also never talked to anybody about what you read, about how much do you think you would remember of that article? <laughs> Probably not a lot, right? But if I said to you, yeah. Leanne, I want you to read this short article and tell me what it's about as soon as you finish reading it. So now I've got your attention, right? You like If someone says that to me, I feel this like little zing of, um, a little zing of anxiety. It's not my strength. Reading something and summarizing is not my strength at all. But if I have to do it, what happens is I do attend more to what I'm reading, right? And then in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I have to recall or summarize this afterward. So what's just happened is you've made something passive, right, like reading, and you've, and you've made it active and you've put it into speaking. Um, and by having you understand ahead of time that I want you to tell me about what you're reading, um, that's likely to right, focus your attention a little more on, on what you're reading. Um, yeah, I really like that step in the process. Yeah, yeah, just to help you understand. Because I think, I think we all feel that. I know students feel that, right? I don't like to call on students <laughs> and say, okay, what did I just say, you know, out of the blue? <laughs> because it just... You know, you know, that can be difficult, but but letting them know ahead of time. Right. So so I'm going to talk a little bit and then I want you to tell me what I just said. Um, so for people with aphasia who struggle with language, 
we don't have them read an entire article at one time and have them summarize it. What we do is we break the article into shorter units of language. It could be a small paragraph or a couple of sentences or even just one sentence. Um, and what this does is it reduces that cognitive load, right? Because you've already got word finding difficulty and, and the more sentences that are thrown at you, that's also going to make it cognitively more difficult because you have to be, you know, remember this information, retrieve those words and, and put it into a summary. So we reduce the cognitive load to make it um, more manageable. So that's the attentive reading part. The constrained summarization um, so you've just read a few sentences. The act of reading those sentences in the first place acts as a primer for the semantic system, right? So it brings that information, um, act, activates it. Because what you're going to summarize now is what you've just read. So it's going to be a little easier to choose from those words rather than if you're not reading, just to choose some words out of your head. Um, so now you're going to summarize what you've read from memory. And the thing about taking that active form of reading and making, or sorry, the passive form of reading and making it active is you're retrieving information. So every time you retrieve something, it could be a word, a concept, a memory, um, what you're doing is you're further encoding it in memory. So theoretically, you're strengthening um, that system. It, it, it acts as a secondary encoding and has the potential to strengthen semantic access. Um, another way to strengthen semantic access is to constrain the person to use only specific words intentionally. So people with aphasia have word finding difficulty it's a whole lot easier for them to reach for a non-specific word like a pronoun or use thing instead of a specific word or use there or, or stuff. Um, so then to find the target word, right? So the constraint rules and arcs are meant to strengthen that semantic system by saying, hey, look, you're going to go in there. You just read these words. You're going to choose um, more specific ones or if in the reading there was a pronoun that was used, what you're going to do is you're going to activate that pronoun and you're going you're gonna to substitute it with the target word, even though you didn't just read that target word, but you, you have that target word from, from, from the, the previous time reading. Um, so another constraint, which we've already gone off on, is like the tangents or the opinions, right? Um, this is also meant to focus attention. So sometimes you read something and it's so exciting and there's like an explosion in your head and you have all of these ideas and all of these opinions based on it. Um, so restraining that by just sticking to the, the topic and then, and then just holding off on providing opinions until you're finished reading the entire article is, is, is meant to, theoretically meant to strengthen attention. Um, Okay, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that so much because um, when I've been implementing this in my practice, um, I'm, I'm like, I'm totally on board with the logic and the reasoning behind the constraints about avoiding things, stuff, it, and pronouns. Um, we want that, that specific targeted language. 
But when it came to the criteria for like, you know, no opinions, no extraneous information, like only summarize what's there. I'm like, but I'm interested in their opinion. Like it's valid. And it's also a great tool for like building that therapeutic alliance and like us getting to know each other a little bit better. And it, it makes it a little bit more like a conversation and less like, you know, hardcore therapy task. But with your explanation and your reasoning, I'm like, oh, that makes so much more sense now. (laughs) Like like I'm on point now. Like let's, we will talk about that and we will unpack it. But like for the purposes of building um, that connection and staying on, on topic and on task and building those semantic pathways stronger and doing that encoding, like this is that focused, attentive practice for that. So like, I'm all like, oh, this is why I was like, I need to interview Dr. Rogalski. Like, I need to know these things. Yeah. And like what, what you've hit upon is really important. So this is a treatment that um, isn't meant to supplant conversation. It isn't meant to supplant communication skills and using multimodality communication, right? So we'll have people who... They'll do the ARCS treatment in clinic, right? And they'll train up these rules. It's a specific rehabilitative technique, but then they'll come to the aphasia group and we don't stop them from using non-specific words in the aphasia group. We don't stop them from drawing pictures or, or gesturing. All of that is included in the aphasia group um, because there's a different purpose for ARCs versus versus communication. Uh-huh. But what we have noticed is that with some of our clients, they'll bring in those constraints to a different setting like the aphasia group. So they'll start to talk and they'll use a word like thing. And then they'll actually say out, out, out loud, they'll say, oh, I know I'm not supposed to say that. And then on their own, they will find the target word or circumlocute to get the target word or use the arrest of the aphasia group to help come up with that word. Um, and ARCS is not conversation. So, so focusing on conversation, that would require a conversation treatment, right? Um, using the communication partner to help with conversation. So, so ARCS is not like the only treatment out there. It is one of many treatments that we use um, whose specific purpose is to really try to enhance or engage that semantic system, um, you know, by using reading and, and, and summarizing. I love that. I love that this is a tool used to address discourse through the modality of reading. Because when I first like stumbled upon it and I'm like reading up, I'm like, oh, good. I was looking for something to address reading comprehension. <laughs> But then I kept reading and I was like, oh, no, this isn't to improve reading comprehension. (laughs) Right. So originally and it's so silly because um, I I didn't think of it as a reading comprehension treatment, but it has since been used as a reading comprehension treatment. Right. Which makes total sense because you're reading information um, when you have to summarize in order to produce a summary you have to understand what you're reading. And so Janet Webster and colleagues, um, they have published an article that includes a person with aphasia um, who, 
and in it, they compared ARCs to several other reading comprehension treatments. And so they, they used it as a reading comprehension treatment, um, had pre-test and post-test reading comprehension measures. Um, so it has been, it has been used um, as part of reading comprehension. And it was uh, more recently in included in the paper by uh, Mary Purdy and colleagues, Reading Comprehension Treatment and Aphasia, a Systematic Review. Um, so you can also find it in there as a strategy treatment. Um, so although it wasn't the original intent, and I don't know why, probably because we had a very specific purpose in mind, um, and the, the, the original case study was for someone who didn't have any reading difficulty at all. Um, he really just, this is the person with primary progressive aphasia, he really just struggled with word finding. He used a lot of nonspecific language and tangents. So this was a way of really um, training uh, some of that language that, you know, was just explosive in his head. He, he restraining that and getting him to stick to a task and getting him to hold off on providing opinion um, until the end. But yeah, not, we, I wasn't thinking reading comprehension at the time. I, I'm really like thrilled to learn that this um, was created from an interaction with like one patient. Like what could be something that would help this one person? It wasn't like, here's a typical um, deficit or impairment that people with aphasia often experience. What can we do to address that? This was born out of an, an interaction with a specific person and their unique needs. And what can we do to help this one person? And then it's like, okay, now let's like formalize it, study it and apply it to other areas. And then you've seen how it's been applied in ways that it wasn't necessarily intended, but clearly it's not doing any harm to be like a purely reading comprehension task. So that's really cool to see how things like morph and grow and adapt over yeah. time. Yeah. And I have to say, um, so like the original arcs case studies are really like Phase one, right? Preliminary treatment um, case reports where we're just trying to establish the therapeutic effect. Jessica Obermeyer, thank goodness, has expanded the treatment, has added that writing component is now into, you know, phase two. Um, but the evidence for the original ARCS treatment was just really preliminary. Um, in both studies, we were very cautionary about, you know, interpreting the results, um, uh, that sort of thing, but uh, but it got picked up. Um, it in in some ways, you, you know, it, it spread. People um, people found it had a purpose for things, but um, it would be remiss for me to say <laughs> or to not say that you know we, we do need more studies in this area. Um, I'm begging for people who who have um, patient populations to study this further. I would be happy to contribute and help with that. Um, it's just that where I am uh, in Ithaca, New York, we don't have a lot of folks with aphasia to do this with. So, um, yeah, yeah, it does need more work, needs more evidence. Um, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into intended populations. Now, as we've discussed, this can be used in a wide variety of applications. So um, what would be some key things that your potential patient, like I'm thinking people are listening and they're like, okay, how can I apply this to my study? 
which patients on my caseload might be a good fit for this tool. So if you could walk me through that about kind of, um, I hate to use the term like ideal candidate because it is so flexible. It can meet a lot of ranges, um, but they're, they're, they do have to have certain things intact for this modality to, to yeah, work. Right. So when deciding if a client is a good candidate for ARCs, there are definitely th- a few things to keep in mind. So can they read at a phrase level um, or can they speak at a phrase level? So this wasn't a problem, as I said, for the first client uh, who had primary progressive aphasia. He could read no problem. Um, but when speaking, he used, you know, a non-specific language and tangents. Um, for the two women that were in the second paper, the case studies that we did, they both had Wernicke's aphasia. One was moderate, one was severe. Um, the treatment only worked for the person who had moderate. So if a person's aphasia is more severe, this would not be a good treatment choice for them. Um, if someone's, uh, if someone has a reading disorder that prohibits them from reading and, and gaining information at a phrase level, like a deep alexia, this is not a good treatment for them because they're going to struggle so much with reading that it's going to interfere with their ability to, 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 to use the treatment how it's meant to be used, which is to enhance the semantic level, right, for word finding. Um, and this happened with the second woman in the, in the second paper in the case study who had a more severe aphasia. She had a deep alexia, so she was producing reading errors that were morphologic, phonemic, um, semantic. And we found that, you know, we were having her... Um, the clinician was was uh, using doing like lip cues a lot to try to help the person with reading, and it just it, it the the treatment didn't didn't work as intended. Um, now, in saying that, this past semester, we had a client in our clinic who had a deep alexia and a deep agraphia, and we used arcs with her not to help with her reading, um, but we used it as um, for listening. So instead of her reading, she would listen to the clinician read. And the intention of that, again, was not to help with, uh, you know, reading, but to help her with word finding, because she produced a lot of nonspecific words, and to help her with reining in some of those tangents. Um, So ARCs can be modified, right? Um, But again, you, you, my suggestion would be not with someone who has a severe aphasia. Um, with, for Jessica Obermeyer's studies where she's added the writing component, she's used folks who have mild aphasia. So that's a, that's a good population for the ARCs writing. Uh, I work in outpatient, and so I'll get higher level patients um, where word finding is their primary concern. So I have found this to be a really useful task. And the irony is I actually had them start doing like a writing adaptation of it. And then I found out that the writing has been studied and published on. And I was, 
I was like, that's so cool because it is, it's, it becomes very intuitive. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that, you know, arcs can be adaptable. It can be modified to fit different needs because at first when, when I've like gone down this road of like really researching and learning, like what evidence is out there and then trying to apply it in my practice, I've, I've been heavily modifying things and like embarrassed of it and like, Ooh, don't tell because I'm not doing the evidence. Right. So it's probably not necessarily really working or it's like my dirty little secret. <laughs> clinical expertise. That's part of the evidence-based triangle, right? You have your clinical expertise that you're adding and you've worked with other clients um, and you know, right. What, what, what modifications would, would be appropriate. Plus it's individualized. So you need to incorporate that client as part of your evidence-based triangle as well and make sure that you're adapting it to fit their needs and their interests. So don't sell yourself short. <laughs> I love hearing that. That like really helps because somehow in my mind I had like, if it, if this is the protocol, like you don't deviate from it or like you're not going to get the results that are intended. Right. So, um, like, it's just, it's really great to hear that idea of modifying and adapting and using all the pieces of that triangle in your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's key. We've, um, we've also used arcs. Um, we had a client who hated reading, right? You never want to give someone a reading treatment if they hate reading, but again, he, he produced a lot of tangents. He had nonspecific words. So we would use video clip summaries. So we would just find some of his areas of interest on, we'd get a clip on YouTube and then, you know, watch the whole clip once to get a preview of it and then watch sections of the clip and then have him summarize using, using constraints that were specific to his needs. Mostly, mostly it was the tangential one. So not providing opinion. Um, yeah. It's not a, like <laughs> it's not a treatment that everybody likes too. I, I think I need to say that, right? Um, we definitely have people say, "Oh God, you know, I hate this. I, I don't want to do this," and that's fine. That is valid feedback. You know, I um, we try to add modifications so that it, it doesn't you don't get that burden or cognitive load, but sometimes, I mean, it's just not, it's not interesting to someone or um, it, it's too challenging, you know, for, for other reasons. So in that case, I wouldn't even modify it. I'd say, oh, like, let's scrap it, right? So I let the client, you know, try it to see if this is something that, that they'd be interested in. And then, no, let's find something that's meaningful to you because ultimately it's their choice. They need to decide, right, what what they want to to work on in order for in order for treat, treatment to work. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the material, the the reading passages, um, I thought we could spend a little time talking about that. Um, tell me what you were using um, in your research and currently when you're applying this to your groups and um, the therapy that you're supervising. Yeah. Um, so the the thing to keep in mind is really any any reading material that is interesting to the client or that they want to work on. So it could be news items, emails, letters. So 
we have found that narrative stories don't work as well um, if there's lots of dialogue in them, because that can be tricky to memorize. So in the past, we've used the Week magazine. So this magazine offers articles that are quick summaries of all the major news stories all over the world for the, for the previous week. Um, so that worked because they were shorter articles. For the second case study with the individuals with Wernicke's aphasia, we used a site called literacynet.org. So they have a lot of archives of news stories from CNN with categories from several topics. So they've got culture and society, health, environment. Um, the thing I like about this site is that you can find abridged versions of the articles. So the abridged versions were shorter, they were simpler in terms of language, but you also have the full article too, if you were working with say a higher level client. Um, there are lots of free materials available on the web. So I was just hunting around and, and, and um, it's, it's always nice to see when clinicians say, hey, this is what I found that works for me. Um, good sources for material include sites that are geared toward non-native English speakers. Right? So if they're learning English, it's easier for them to have, or you know, it works better if they have passages that, that are a little simpler in terms of language. Um, so I think, yeah, go ahead. Um, I have found a website that I really like that has um, large print articles and it's on one page. So the whole page is just this one short article and it is, it's a nice, simple level. I've also used it for multiple oral rereading tasks as well. Um, and let me pull up that link because I have it saved because it's, it's a really good one. And there's, um, and actually, so every page is roughly, um, a hundred words on the page. Oh, that's nice. So it might be between 90 and like 115 words. Um, and yeah, so because it is written for like the English language learning population, uh, they stick to a theme and they repeat uh, the kind of the, the target vocabulary in that. Um, and the sentence structure is simpler, simplistic, but not um, it's not childish. It's not pediatric. Uh, so those have been a good level to um, begin with uh, people who maybe have like a higher level of difficulty or deficits. And so, um, and then we like stair step up from there. But some other resources that I've really enjoyed pulling in have been um, like health literacy topics. So pulling in information from like the American Stroke Foundation or the Diabetes Foundation, just like just health education. So like they're reading and having to summarize what they're reading, but it's like very helpful health information and I was working with a patient actually using this modality more as a attentive, just for attentional purposes, so that they would focus on what they were doing with that expectation of having to summarize it to me right after, um, because they complained about like reading the same thing five times and not like remembering. They did not have aphasia. Um, they did not have a stroke. So um, I gave that patient um, 
information on aphasia actually and had them read like a paragraph about aphasia about Broca's aphasia the difference between Wernicke's and they loved reading it they were like so interested and they were like oh my aunt had this they had the Broca's style like they were so interested in that information and it wasn't necessarily like what they had gone through like their health um but they could apply that to the people in their life and they found it like they were like really interested in learning about it. So I thought that that was really fun. So oh, that's great. I like to pull in like that kind of information too and see where it goes. Cause like you said, sometimes patients are just like, nope, not, not having it. And then we pivot. So I like to, to try those different kinds of information and pull it from these websites. Um, there's a lot of really good things that we can pull from, um, I forget which website, but like, uh, the, is it like the National Institutes of Health have so much information up there already, like in PDFs that are easy to print off. Right. So those are just a couple of the things that I found too. And I'll put the links for those websites up in our show notes too, that people can access. Nice. Yeah. It's always great when people share resources. <laughs> yeah. It, it helps kind of ease the way. Mm-hmm. Something something we didn't do for the case studies uh, that I really wish we had, and and there will hopefully be a future opportunity to do this. Knock on wood. Um, is is really um, you know start off at a simpler paragraph level and then increase, right? Uh, times I mean the materials we were using we're fine. It was what we had at the, at the time. Right. Um, but it would be nice to stage or step up and, and start with something shorter and increase. And I know, um, is it, I know tactus therapy has, has like, there are apps that you could get that, that in fact do this, that you could use ARCs with. Um, I would, mm-hmm. uh, start with something free and finding free resources. Um, but I know there are some good apps out there too that can help. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, one thing I found is that it was recommended to start at, um, about a sixth grade reading level and then go up or down from there based on how the patient did with that reading passage. And I think a lot of people would would ask like, well, how do I know if this is a sixth grade reading level? And there's another SLP out there named Lisa Young, who has a really great webpage and blog. And she's written about using ARCs with really positive effects. Uh And she's found some really good resources that I'll share um, in the show notes and here too, um, about a readability test tool online where it will you can like put in the website and it'll just like spit it out for you, like what grade level it is. Yeah. So there are lots of really um, useful technologies that are also free and available to help you um, know what reading level you're at and be able to adjust the the challenge level for the patient appropriately. Yeah, that's so great. It is. It's really great crowdsourcing this information. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's out there doing it. Right. And then if we just like share that with everybody, then Mm -hmm. we all benefit. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've talked about what ARCS is, the purpose of it, who it's for. Um, I thought it would be interesting to answer this question. Where can I use ARCS? 
So do you mean like which setting or? That's part of the fun of the question is like, how do you interpret that? Like, yes, the setting, like however you want to interpret like where, what that means, like we can go very theoretical with this. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, um, so we'll go with setting to start and see, see, see which tangent that sparks. Um, so we've used ARCs in the outpatient hospital setting, um, which makes sense, right? If you've got clients coming in once a week or, or twice a week for like a 50 minute or an hour session, um, you know, you can build up the treatment with that because it's, it's, it's not, again, you're not training up a specific article, you're training a process. So giving them more practice and getting them in the habit of using those constraints, um, is, is something that you'd want to do. So, so outpatient therapy setting, and then also at, um, at Ithaca college, uh, in a college clinic setting, which you have graduate students, um, clients come one to two times a week for a semester. Um, and then you can get about, you know, I think for the, so, so for the outpatient setting for the, we were like 18 sessions or something. Um, and we found that, that that was enough time, at least for, for our clients, for them to make gains um, in this area. Um, where else can you use ours? <laughs> so the, um, the surprising thing that we, or, or that I noticed about the therapy technique is that um, I would find clients using this outside of the therapy room now it's not like they would walk down the hall and they would like read something and summarize it, but more in terms of really um, using those constraints when they were talking with others, like for example, in the Asia group. Um, now, and, and as I already mentioned, we don't, we don't make people use ARCs in the aphasia group. We don't have rules in the aphasia group about using no pronouns. In fact, it's the opposite we say use whatever you can, whatever modality works. We are here to communicate and have simply found that for some clients, they are applying applying those um, constraint rules or processes in that setting. Um, so inpatient, and again, I don't I don't have knowledge or awareness of the inpatient rehab side of things. So I would love to hear more about that if. If you know of anyone who's I think of inpatient rehab as being very uh, like therapy uh, session driven, like lots of treatments, right? Because they're seen every day for a certain amount of time. So you get um, very consistent interaction there. And so um, I think that would be a good setting. And skilled nursing facilities are also very um, therapy and treatment driven. And so that might be good opportunities there. So. Yeah. Wow. We've really covered our outline here. Like it's been great. So (laughs) I do have a question though. Um, So you, you mentioned Ithaca is a teaching college Mm -hmm. and that, that just designates it as like they, they don't just as a, as a college on the whole, do a whole lot of 
like research or how, what, what kind of distinction does that make? Right. So, um, so the difference between a, a teaching college, um, so we, we have um, mostly undergraduate programs at the college, and then we have graduate programs in the health sciences. So we have like PT, OT, rec therapy, exercise, sports science. So we do have graduate programs there. We don't have any PhD programs. Um, although, sorry, we do have a doctorate in um, physical therapy, but we don't have any PhD programs. So it's not a research institution. So at a research institution, you have faculty who may be teaching, but their role is more on the research side of things. So they might have um, grants. Uh, they might be required to have grants, right, to buy out some of that teaching time so that they can spend the time really developing those um, research research projects. So in that case, you might have doctoral level students who are able to teach the main courses while the faculty you know, focuses more on the research. So at a teaching institution, we focus more on teaching. Um, research is... 100% a part of what we have to do. Like any professor, it's it's research, teaching, and service. Those are the those are the three requ requirements um, for our jobs, for obtaining tenure. Um, it's just that we spend more time teaching. <laughs> um, and then we're also, you know, in a smaller place uh, than than some of these larger research institutions. So we might not have access to the same patient populations that someone in a, in a larger city would, or as many of those um, populations. But what's really great is, um, so I love teaching. That's why I chose Ithaca College. Um, I think ever since I was five, I wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> so so that's great. And I love um, supervising the students and still having access to the populations that I teach about. So um, part of the fun and enjoyment and reward for me is being part of the aphasia group or, you know, supervising clinic, uh, clinicians who have clients with some of the uh, neurogenic communication disorders that I teach about that, like still getting to see the clients um, and interact with them now, of course, on Zoom, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, you know, being part of that therapy experience, because I guess that as the outset, I've always wanted to help close that clinician researcher gap. And um, I still very much want to contribute to research. I mean, for other reasons, I've, I've not been able to do that so much. Um, but am hopefully, you know, getting getting back <laughs> getting back into it. I've got some great collaborators that I work with. So um, again, being at a teaching institute, I may not have as much time for research, but I can collaborate with other people, and together we can work on research projects. So collaborating with them, you know, outside of the institution, maybe with someone who has uh, more access to a patient population. Um, Jessica Obermeyer and I, uh, so Jessica Obermeyer is the one who developed the writing component with ARCS. Um, so we are hoping to do some collaboration and to extend the research in this, extend the ARCS research. 
essentially. So good. Excellent. That's awesome. I, I found it really helpful to understand kind of what goes into um, creating what we would call like evidence-based practice in aphasia therapy. And um, so I, yeah, it's been really fun like to talk with you and to learn about like that process. And um, cause I just, I keep going back. Like I mentioned it earlier that it was really fun to hear that this was created just from your interactions, you know, with one patient, like how can we help this one patient? And you created like a program for that, that has applications to so many other populations and so many other areas. And it's being used in a wide variety of ways. And it's been adapted to treat other areas and other places of language. So, right. And again, needing more evidence, right? Like I have to stress that still need more evidence for those other populations and adaptations. And my hope is that there are some clinicians and researchers who could pair up and explore this further and, and get more evidence um, out there so that we can really validate the, the therapy. Mm -hmm. um, there are some universities spread across the U.S. that have um, like intensive aphasia programs at their colleges, at their universities. Um, so would partnering with uh, like one or two or a couple of those programs like be helpful? Yes. Yes. And actually, um, so um, we have done that with Austin Speech Labs, not for ARCs, um, but looking more at conversational outcome measures um, for um, the participants in their in their intensive aphasia boot camps and the therapists. So um, I was on sabbatical last year in the spring um, when the pandemic hit. So the plan was to be able to go to Austin Speech Labs, um, to be able to work with uh, some of the collaborators. So so Megan Savage and. Um, and then Shilpa, at, who's, who's at Austin Speech Labs, we were going to collaborate and collect this data and, and work on, um, you know, ultimately a treatment study in, in conversation. It had nothing to do with ARCs. Uh, so we were able to collect some preliminary data from them, and um, which I was, you know, able to analyze. Uh, not get any post-treatment data because of the pandemic, but um, definitely have some data there. So that's uh, like I said, collaboration is, is, is really key. And so, so that's one area I've been looking into. Can you speak to the idea of, um, using your graduate students in the process of doing research and doing the collaborations and what that looks like? Right. So, um, for the second case study with Wernicke's aphasia, the two, two authors on the paper, um, they were graduate students. Uh, so I'm sorry, I just had a brain freeze on their name. So Valerie Daly and Melissa Gardner, um, they were graduate students at the time. And they, the participants in the study were their clients in the clinic. 
Um, and that was just such a, a, a neat process. So getting to work with the graduate students, having them engage in research and learning about the research process and, um, you know, learning about the, the pre-testing and what we had to do and taking data in the session and following the protocol. Uh, but at the same time, they were getting clinical hours because they were graduate students, right? So they were getting clinical hours for their um, masters in speech language pathology. Um, so that was, that was great. Um, you know, the, so the pros, I've already mentioned the cons are um, having less experimental control. Like when you're trying to do this in the context of a semester, right? And just fold it into a regular schedule. Um, you know, there would be um, easier ways of doing it, right? If you had like a more controlled ways of doing it, but, but that's, that's just not the, um, the context that, that, that we had. Uh, so I enjoy working with graduate students and, um, and hope to incorporate them more uh, in, in research. But yeah, so there, there are challenges doing that as well. When I, I remember when I was in grad school and working in the clinic and it's, it, there's a certain level of being overwhelmed because, you know, you're learning all this information then you're applying it and then you're receiving feedback and, and, you know, making calibrations and trying to alter for that. But like, I cannot imagine at the same time be like making all of that work, follow a protocol for research. Cause I would be like, Ooh, well, it's gotta be like, just so we, we have to follow like the protocol to a T. What if I don't? What if something happens? Right. Like right. there's a lot of training that goes involved into like make sure that you're both doing it, you know, the same way so that you because you, you do, you still try to control for as many of those features that might come in and influence the outcomes. Right, right. And I still had to supervise them to make sure that they were, you know, following the protocol. But keep in mind, these were grad students who were doing this on top of everything else. So on top of taking a bunch of courses on top of their other clinic clients, um, and on top of just being human. But I think, you know, master's level programs, they're they're tough. I call it a boot camp for the brain. You know, like you're not getting a lot of physical exercise if you're not careful. Um, you, you have to. You have to. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's just tough. So, and and I know, I know how hard it is. And looking back, I think, oh gosh, you know, that was a lot. That was a lot for them. But um, they're both so strong and resilient and amazing and um have gone on to do great and wonderful things um and you know i i'm so thankfully to, to you val and melissa for helping me out with that because uh that was big and um it's because of that we were able to get it publication out which was great i'm really glad that y'all did that hard work because it's really been a very uh, functional and feasible tool to add to my repertoire. So 
All right. So I'm wondering, um, what exactly are the steps? We've really talked in really broad strokes about how to implement it, who to implement it with and where we can do it. But let's get down to the nitty gritty. Like, start me off with step one. What do I need uh, to do ARCs? Uh, do I, how much do I need to prepare? And then when I'm working with the patient, what's kind of one, two, three, what are my steps? Right. Great. Um, so the first thing you need to do is find an appropriate reading passage. So one that's not too long, that doesn't have a lot of quotes or dialogues, that, that has simplified language. And we've talked about some of those already. So find a, a passage, um, have ready a piece of paper or on a whiteboard, you can write the constraints that for the client. So these will be present during the session. Um, so that the client can refer to them or so that the clinician can point them out without being too disruptive. So the constraints that we've used in our studies are no opinion, uh, but you can add your opinion after we finish, no pronouns like he, she, it, they, no non-specific words like thing, stuff, or there. So you have those for the client ready to go. Then you give the client a passage and then the clinician has the same passage as well so that the clinician can take down notes on that reading passage. They can underline any reading errors if they need to go back and, and you know, make corrections with the client. Um, and it also serves as a nice place to tally information for those constraints because you, you need to take your data during the session as well. Um, so to start, the client reads the entire passage out loud. It provides a preview of the content. And then the client's going to read a short amount of material out loud. This could be one to two sentences or a short paragraph. It really depends on the client's reading and retention ability. The purpose of reading out loud um, is to allow the clinician to correct any reading errors that arise. So for example, if the person exhibits semantic paraphasic errors, they have an incorrect word, the clinician should correct that because we don't want to reinforce the error during the summary. So the client, after they read out loud, they should then be given the opportunity to reread the short amount um, silently for comprehension to account for any information that was missed during reading aloud. Then they're going to summarize that unit of information from memory while adhering to the constraints that are written on the paper. Um, so we've covered, um, what we've done in the past is covered up the section that they have to say from memory so that they're not tempted to look at it and just, you know, reread aloud what they, what, what is written there. Um, and then during that summarization, the person, how we score it is they have to constrain to all three of our rules that we've written down. If they, if they do, like if they don't provide any opinion, they don't use pronouns, they don't use non-specific words, they get a score of one. Um, but if they violate any of those rules or all of them, they get a score of zero. So that's, I mean, it just makes scoring easier. And then at the end of the passage, you can add up, you know, how many points they got out of the potential number of points. Um, during the client summary, the clinician gives feedback and encourages the client to circumlocute if 
word finding difficulties arise. And then it's just a matter of repeating those steps to so the client. Uh, sorry, the client rereads that section. Um, and this acts as feedback and helps consolidate the information. So then they just repeat the steps. So they read aloud, read silently, they summarize using the constraints, then they reread, and then they move on until the whole thing is, um, the whole passage is, is read. And then at the very end, have them summarize the entire passage from memory, again, just to reconsolidate and, and to, to reactivate some of those semantic words that they've hit on during the, during the treatment. And then homework. Yes, tell me more about homework. Well, homework, <laughs> so what we've done uh, in the past is then given some um, passages for the client to take home and to either practice using ARCs and then summarizing out loud to a friend or spouse, or if there's no one around, they can, they can summarize in writing what they've read so that they can do the whole thing except use written constraints. This was before um, Jess Obermeyer um, came up with the writing component of ARCs. So she has a few different rules when, when, following, when following that. For homework, we would just have the person write those summaries. Homework is important, but again, this would not work with someone who has a graphia, right? They're writing it out. Um, the written summaries for homework. So for that person, we would recommend that they would produce the summaries, but to a listener, like a, a spouse or, a, you know, partner or, or friend. Excellent. Well, Yvonne, this was fabulous. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to sit down and record with me and guide us through the steps of ARCs, the work it takes to um, create these tools and get them published and um, future hopeful outcomes for this too, as it grows and develops and all those areas. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Leanne. This has been fun. Big thanks to Dr. Yvonne Rogalski for joining me on today's episode. I had a couple aha moments in today's conversation. The first one is that a single patient can inspire the development of an aphasia therapy technique that goes on to help countless others. My other insight is the reason for the one constraint that always bothered me, the one about not giving the person's opinion in the summarization. Like I couldn't figure out why. I was like, that's kind of mean. <laughs> but now that I have the full story, I understand why it's there and the purpose of it. And it just feels really good to have that loose end all tied up now. So please be sure to check out the links and the resources in the show notes on speechuncensored.com. We covered some great tools in our discussion today, and they're up on the website for you to access and more that we didn't even specifically cover that I added that I think you'll find really helpful. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd really love to hear from you. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share why you listen. This helps other SLPs find the podcast and give it a listen. And plus, I just love reading them. They make my heart so happy. <laughs> 
A big, big thanks to the team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for providing CEUs for this episode and giving it those final editing touches to be public ready and beautiful for your ears. They do amazing work. It's my hope that our conversation today has nourished your mind so that your practice can flourish. Now go out there and be awesome. And thanks for listening. 